Hi, and welcome to a Voices of Esalen Extended Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today, I'm pleased to present another installment of our Psychedelic Integration series, drawn from the 2019 conference of the same name at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. Our topic today is cannabis, considered a psychedelic by some, merely a close relative by others. Regardless of perspective, however, there was surely an inordinate amount of insight and knowledge concerning cannabis at this conference. This episode is comprised of two elements. First, a panel on cannabis, which included Martin Lee, Rick Doblin, Ben Sessa, Julie Holland, Marsha Rosenbaum, and Alan Bediner. And then a speech on CBD and the endocannabinoid system itself, presented by Martin Lee. If you're seeking to more completely understand the adaptive capacities of marijuana from a therapeutic or medicinal perspective, I think you'll really enjoy listening to these experts. And so you'll know a bit about them. I've included Alan Bediner's introductory remarks as a preface for each speaker. So with no further ado, let's talk about cannabis. As a columnist in the 80s, at the LA Weekly, I was writing about mind and spirit movements, everything from psychoneuroimmunology to Tony Robbins to Thich Nhat Hanh. I was planning to check out a psychedelic conference down the road, but I was busy building a house nearby and having issues with the contractor. So a friend of mine said, look, I know a college student uh, who had some experience building houses, I could send him over and you could consult with him about your problems with your contractor. So he did indeed. His name was Rick Doblin. <laughs> and I told Rick what my issues were, and he said, uh-huh, but Alan, have you thought about it from the contractor's point of view? <laughs> I, I wanted to throw him off the property, but I held myself and I said, uh, what is your career ambitions? I'm just curious. And he straight up said, I learned at Esalen I'm going to be a psychedelic therapist. And I looked at him like, is there such a thing? <laughs> and then he said, and then I'm going to go to JFK. I'm going to go to Kennedy. What is it? Kennedy School of Government. And I need to then meet the players. And I need to change all the laws. I said, oh, my God. I, I actually believed that he would do all the things he said, but I thought it would take a few more lifetimes. I wonder, Rick, if it's surprising to you that your life and the culture at large has evolved exactly as you planned. I, th <laughs> I thought so. Wow. What a, what a great example of the persistent power of, intent, of good intention. Thank you for being here, Rick. The long-term goal for MAPS is to, as a nonprofit, is to think about what's the least expensive form that cannabis can become a medicine, and how does that act as, in some ways, a check on the for-profit pharmaceutical companies that are going to try to make uh, various extracts that they can uh, put into delivery systems that are non-smoking that they can then patent and then charge a lot of money. So the example of Epidiolex, the CBD drug that's from... GW Pharmaceuticals for Childhood Epilepsy, um, it's very expensive, and it could be in the neighborhood of um, $30,000, $40,000 a year for CBD. It's in a, a spray, so it's a little bit easier for kids, but it's still very, very expensive. So the least expensive form is in the flowers that are just um, cut and presented as flowers, and then people can use them either smoking or vaporizing, or they can make them into oils or whatever they want to do. So what we've been trying since um, 
I'll go back a little bit. Since um, in 1992, we started working with a uh, marijuana study for um, AIDS wasting. We got FDA approval, IRB approvals, but the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which has a monopoly on the supply of federally legal marijuana, wouldn't sell us any of the marijuana until we looked at the risks and gave up looking at the benefits. Then we worked with uh, Ethan Russo. That was with Donald Abrams. Then we worked with Ethan Russo and did a project with uh, marijuana for migraines. And the same old story that we got FDA approval, IRB approval, and NIDA refused to sell us the marijuana. So then I realized the problem was the monopoly and we would stop dealing with um, trying to do more studies and try to end the monopoly. So I spent a year trying to find the Rosa Parks of medical marijuana production. And um, we finally found this guy, um, Lau Craker, who was uh, someone who had uh, an expertise in plant medicines. He had, didn't smoke marijuana. He'd worked on um, military secret, not secret, but sort of secure projects, trying to look at herbicides for coca plants. So he had all the security clearances that were necessary, and he really cared about research more than anything else. And so we started in 2000 to try to break this monopoly. Um, in 2005, we had a lawsuit against the DEA. We won the lawsuit, but yet again, as in MDMA, the DEA rejected the recommendation of the judge. And then we lost in the appeals court. And so we kept whittling away at it and whittling away at it. And then what happened was that um, finally, um, in August of 2016, before, uh, shortly before Obama's term ended, shortly before the November election that brought us Trump, the DEA said that they would end the monopoly. They put a notice in the Federal Register and said that it was time for the monopoly to end and that their argument, what I really liked about it is that for decades and decades, this monopoly has been in existence since 1968. And the DEA has always claimed that there's international treaty obligations that block them from giving more than one license. It was never true. It was always just a ruse. But they would uh, go on and on and on about that. And so in this notice in the Federal Register, what happened was they said, oh, yeah, of course we can do this within the international treaty obligations. And they had uh, two paragraphs that would explain how they would do it. Super simple. Um, and then since that point, people started applying for licenses. But then Trump got elected and then put in Attorney General Sessions. And so there's been roughly 26 applicants for setting up federally legal marijuana that can either go through the FDA or you can make it into federally legal medicinal products or herb foods, whatever, but all federally legal. And so finally, once Trump got rid of Sessions, um, then it, now it looks like uh, Attorney General Barr is open to it. So we've had a lot of senators that have been working with us, particularly Republican senators, Orrin Hatch, Grassley, Cory Gardner from Colorado. And so what happened several days ago was that a group of senators wrote another letter to Barr and said that um, it's time. It's time for you to um, license more companies, and you've said that you would do that in your confirmation hearings. And so we'll wait and see about a month or two. We've already written up another lawsuit against the um, DEA and the attorney general for what would be called unreasonable delay if they wait too long. So hopefully we won't have to file that lawsuit, but maybe we'll see. Um, so th I think that's the key step. The next step would be to um, have domestic production that we can make into a medicine because the National Institute on Drug Abuse marijuana, which is of poor quality, 
but it, it's only for academic research. It cannot be made into a commercial sales. So that's how they blocked marijuana from becoming a medicine. And that's why we have all these state medical marijuana laws, but nothing federally because this marijuana cannot be used in phase three studies. So phase three studies, you have to use the exact same drug you want to market. So hopefully that'll end in a, in a couple months, and if not, we'll sue them. And, but I do think that there's more and more support for that, for, for it ending. Ben Sessa is in the house. Ben has a successful practice as a psychedelic psychiatrist in London and curates my favorite conference every year at the Old Naval Academy in Greenwich, just outside of London. Breaking Convention. What a great name for it, too. Scientists, uh, writers, and researchers give presentations and present papers, as well as poets and artists share their work. Breaking Convention is itself a cultural change agent, as well as Ben and his awesome sense of humor. I'm delighted that he made the long trip over here to teach. Thank you, Ben. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's not much we in the UK can teach you lot about cannabis. Uh, we very sadly are still languishing in the Middle Ages in terms of our drug laws in the UK. Uh, cannabis is a Schedule 1 Class B substance. Uh, Schedule 1 meaning it has no medical value, it is dangerous and addictive, um, so the law says. Um, class B meaning you could be spending six years in prison for possession of any amount at all, from the tiniest crumb to a big old wadge of it. So uh, very restrictive laws. And we've been lobbying the government for a long time, myself and my colleague David Nutt, on this issue, putting piles and piles of data on the desks of successive governments for years and getting nowhere. Um, until last year, a couple of high-profile pediatric epilepsy cases hit the front page of the newspaper, and suddenly overnight the Conservative government starts to um, look a bit more favourably at um, medicinal cannabis in the UK. Now, this is obviously a great thing, but very frustrating for us as we've been piling them with data for a very long time, and all it takes is a couple of heart-rendering front-page tabloid paper um, reports and then suddenly the government says so what they're saying at the moment is the conservative government said they are prepared to look on a case-by-case -case basis at the possibility of medical marijuana um, through a specialist committee the ACMD which is a government approved um, drugs committee now in reality they not a single person has actually been treated with medical cannabis in the UK because although they've said they would do this when it comes down to it they're not approving anything um, and one of the problems is the cost um, a similar sort of problem to Rick's describing there may be the will there there may be the evidence there may be the medical evidence to support it but where do you actually get the product because actually getting approved government approved cannabis is very difficult um, the last I heard last week was um, a course of um, government-approved UK cannabis, were it to be approved for a single case, would be about £700 a month um, for the equivalent amount of cannabis of about £40 a month. So there's nobody in their right mind who would sign up to that. So what we're trying to do, and uh, we're, I've got a meeting just when I get back, actually, we're going to start 
just trying to set up a lobby group of just getting consultants, psychiatrists around the UK to just start making recommendations endlessly to this ACMD committee. So they're going to get hundreds and hundreds of requests every week of this patient deserves cannabis and here's the evidence um, to demonstrate why. Um, and the evidence is strong. And, you know, I hear on a daily basis in my addictions clinic, um, if I smoke some cannabis, I don't have as much heroin. I don't use as much in the way of benzodiazepines. I don't use as much alcohol. And what I've been trying to say to my employer is, you know, what doctor in their right mind would say, don't do that? You know, you tell me if you, if you use cannabis, you don't need to do this. What am I supposed to say? No, don't do that. Here, take quetiapine instead. You know, you would be a lousy doctor to do that. So... I'm trying to really push this, that we've got to follow what our patients are asking for. Cannabis is primarily a benign compound. There are harms, there are risks, there are addiction issues as well. We know that, and we're seeing more in the way of cannabis addiction with the high t higher THC strains. It absolutely exists, cannabis addiction. It's very rare, don't see much of it, but if you smoke enough of it regularly all day long, you will develop a dependency syndrome with physical symptoms, and we've, we see that. But that's a very rare thing. The other thing that's even rarer, although this makes the front page, is the psychotogenic risk of cannabis and we've touched on this over the last few days certain number of people who will smoke cannabis and have a psychosis but it's um interestingly the same percentage of people for whom they have schizophrenia in the community anyway so it's a it's a it's a psychosis spectrum and certainly for people on that spectrum at the high risk end personal family history of schizophrenia or bipolar one generally i would say avoid cannabis there's other drugs that are not le not so likely to trigger psychosis but again that is rare so the message i give to my patients and indeed my own children i would say the the riskiest thing about cannabis is it works it does what it says on the tin it it's a you know it's a cognitive impairer in general and certainly if you're a young person if you're a child and you're 14 years old and you're smoking loads of weed all day long it's way more interesting than your history essay you've got to write so i think the biggest risk for young people in cannabis is just that if unless you're a very mature child um it's difficult to separate work from leisure and to prioritize taking your exams so i t generally tend to tell the children and young people i work with to just lay off it until you're kind of 18 and then you'll probably be okay and for most adults using cannabis it's benign and not problematic at all the whole of their lives but there are certainly some risks but final thing just about the legal aspect and i just wanted to say this because i get so irritated by this my friends here in california who Oh, you're all complaining about the monopolization and the corporatization of cannabis industry. And fair play, because you've seen it change. There's me in the UK. I could go to prison for six years for that two grams of vegetable matter in my pocket. And you're moaning about whose name it is above the dispensary door? You are so lucky that you can walk into a shop legally, speak to someone, see a whole range of cannabis products and walk out with it in your hand. I could go to prison for six years for the tiniest crumb. So I appreciate your complaints about the monopolization and corporatization, but shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Lee, author of Acid Dreams, very interesting book. And more recently, Smoke Signals, an important book on the history of cannabis. We met on the book circuit. I love his new book, Smoke Signals. Uh, he told me all about his interest in cannabinoids and CBD.
It turns out that the cannabinoid system of the body is the new exciting focus of medicine. He invited me to attend an ICRS meeting, International Cannabinoid Research Society. I loved it. It was fascinating. I only understood about 10% of it, but Martin Lee speaks science. So he was able to write it up and publish it on projectcbd.org. That is a fantastic site. Uh, if you're looking for in, uh, scientifically correct information and the latest research about CBD, which is on fire right now, that's the place to look, projectcbd.org. Martin, it's great to have you here. Thank you. I don't know anybody who's waiting for cannabis to be declared a medicine in California. It was declared that in 1996. We seem to be moving that way on a federal level. I don't know. That could happen very quickly. It could stretch out for how many more years, this ridiculous prohibition. But, you know, from my perspective, the... the the, the, uh, the challenge isn't to get the federal government to say what we knew 5,000 years ago in ancient China, that cannabis is a medicine, but to figure out how do we use it, because we've been cut off from this because of the illegality and the distortion therein, and, and, and that can be a little bit challenging and tricky. And I, I was struck in the, after the talk I gave, I guess it was yesterday, when I was talking about folks who don't jive well with the plant, and they feel that the plant doesn't like them, they don't have a pleasant experience, and it just... They don't go there, they, they, particularly with the THC-rich plants. That's, that's really what I'm talking about. And many people came up to me, and subsequent to that, uh, saying, I'm one of those people. You know, it was like, um, and, and for those who weren't there, I, I was pointing out that there are, uh, you might say, genetic variants that affect how people metabolize THC. And some people don't readily metabolize it so easily. It stays in their system. Uh, very sensitive to, and they just don't like cannabis. And, and that actually there are a racial breakdown of that, about 20, 25% of Caucasians have that situation. Anyway, but it underscores how it's, uh, uh, I mean, for those people, there are options, there are CBD-rich options that they can get medical benefits from cannabis and still feel okay about it. But, um, you know, cannabis is a very tricky plant, and I, I call it a trickster plant. And, and a lot of things are counterintuitive about it, particularly about how to relate to it. And, it, you know, is that... There's a kind of a meme, uh, I'm in a relationship with the plant, that uh, people say in the cannabis. And there's actually something to that. You know, your relationship with, does evolve with it. It doesn't stay static. Sometimes you've got to take a break, and then you go back to it, refresh, whatever. But one thing that's quite striking, and it resonates with something that Paul was saying yesterday, very small doses of cannabis seem to have very powerful effects. In fact, the, some of the studies, that, some of the animal studies, I know we don't like these things, but are, are, when it's showing some of this work out of Israel, the preclinical research, almost tiny, minuscule doses of THC or CBD uh, provoke long-lasting neuroprotective effects or cardioprotective effects or liver protective effects. Um, and there, some of the clinical research sh shows in terms of uh, cannabis as a painkiller. Um, they've dialed it in. They know how much CBD and THC on average you know, works optimally for a person because GW Pharmaceuticals has done this research for Sativex, which is approved in several countries. About 20 milligrams of Sativex, optimal for pain uh, um, uh, pain control. If you double that, the, it gets less effective. If you triple it, it's not even working at all as a painkiller. So that, that's counter counterintuitive, and yet um, we don't know that because we've lost this connection with the plant. And now we're, I think that the... The challenge at hand really is how to remake that connection and share the knowledge around. That's what we're doing at Project CBD. And we, incident, but I think what's—I'm not scared of the pharmacy, uh, pharmacy, 
pharmaceuticalization of cannabis. You know, it's happening. I, I'm, I'm the least fan of big pharma, you'd know, you know, but it's just gonna, it's, we don't have any control over what they're gonna do with this at GW Pharmaceuticals or any a dozen startups that are trying to uh, focus on single molecules and, and claim they're good for a particular condition and go through the whatever they have to, all, all, all the hoops, you know, which is formidable. But um, they're, that's going to happen. It's fine with me, you know. But these single molecules, eh, they're just one little part of the tool chest, and it's a much more interesting tool chest there when you look at combinations and whole plant spectrums, and then you can factor in terpenes and flavonoids and these other factors in the plant. You have it really is a, a, as a, a treasure chest, as as Ralph um, uh, Mishulam described cannabis. Um, but you know, when we look at when we compare the efficacy of the single molecules to the whole plant, the whole plant's always better. It turns out you need much less of CBD if it's in a whole plant configuration it, uh, as compared to a single molecule thing. But the, again, it's very ironic and tricksterish here. I'll just close with one point. It mentions um, epidiolex. It's a pharmaceutical CBD that's legal in this country for uh, certain conditions of childhood epilepsy. These uh, catastrophic seizures disorders. Um, but I know doctors in California who are working with um, these little children who have these terrible uh, seizure disorders, and the parents are spending money to, to, th through the internet buying these oils. And they're spending a lot of money, and they can't afford to do that. But if they have health insurance, what one particular physician is doing is prescribing Sativex, I mean not Sativex, Epidiolex, means single molecule CBD. They can get it for free because the health insurance covers it. And then they take this stuff and add it to the stuff they're buying from the internet, these more, well, sometimes more effective oils to bring down the, the, the monthly cost. So you think, oh, wow, $38,000 a year for epidiolics. Who can afford that? Well, in a funny, funny way, it's actually helping the very people who couldn't afford it. We have all these tools, and, and I think bring them on. Let's have a lot more. But just remember that, unfortunately, the, the political realities are that the pharmaceuticalized versions are the ones that privilege in terms of legality, in terms of what, what gets sanctioned by the culture. And this is still underground or semi-underground when, when you're dealing with the whole plan. And it, this, this whole situation can change dramatically, you know, if, if, uh, when it becomes legal on a federal level, as, as the momentum seems to be going there. Um, and it could happen sooner than we think, or it can uh, drag on a lot longer. But this just changes the whole game here, because it, that's not what the FDA is generally in the business of doing, approving plants as medicines. Um, and, but now they really are stuck in, in between a rack and a hard place at the FDA because they have to deal with CBD. And it's like it's completely disordered their cosmos. The usual way they do it, they go to back for the pharmaceutical and they suppress the herbs. They can't do that now because there's this huge demand for CBD. Marsha Rosenbaum is Director Emerita at Drug Policy. Uh, Alliance, a longtime activist and writer, and who specializes in drug policy for young people, about young people. She has written a book called Safety First, a reality-based approach to teens and drugs. There are copies on that table, and she's brought them as gifts for you. If you know people who have kids and teens, that's an important book for them. She's also co-wrote with Jerome Beck a book called Pursuit of Ecstasy, the MDMA Experience. Marcia and I served together on a psychedelic funding circle for Threshold Foundation. It's so much fun to have you here. Thank you for being here. So I'm going to interject some 
information and, and thoughts about policy and what makes it possible, really, for us to have these discussions and, and deal with the, these dilemmas and these conflicts. I just want to share with you a, a remark that a sociologist named Lynn Zimmer made to me right around 1990. We were commiserating about the drug war, which was in really full swing at that time. Um, people were getting arrested. People were going to prison for a long time. That got us mass incarceration, on and on. And she says, well, you know, she says, the most popular drug, the largest, I don't know what you would call it, is marijuana. If you take marijuana out of the mix, since most people use it, then you basically take the guts out of the drug war. Okay. So listen to that. And, of course, I'm in California. We are in California here. And California is the largest state. And so in 1996, the Drug Policy Alliance got behind and put the money together for Prop 215. Prop 215, medical marijuana. And that was the beginning. We knew that with medical marijuana, ultimately we would get to full legalization, um, which we did 20 years later in 1996. A lot of work, policy work, went into both of those laws. It, it, I want to add to what Ben said. Not only is full recreational that you walk into a store, and believe me, you know, there's a nice store on Lombard Street. I love it. You know, you go shopping and go to Walgreens and I go to the market and I go by the pot store. It's great. Um, but what it is more important than that, because, you know, we really could get it um, from uh, all the way from Prop 215. You, all you needed was a card. But what's more important is the expungements of people's record, prior records, that thousands and thousands of people are having their criminal records cleared. And that's the most important thing on top of far, far, far fewer arrests and, and, and all of that. But what happened with this um, industry, um, is that it has grown and grown and grown. A lot of people are making a lot of money with this industry. One kind of sad thing is that many of them, if not most now, have forgotten how they got there. It's like it, the cannabis legalization fell from the trees and they're making a ton of money. Yeah, so just a few fun uh, factoids, and I defer to Martin Lee when it comes to the history of cannabis in every respect. So you flag me if I'm off base, Marty. Um, we've had medical cannabis in India for 5,000 years, and uh, it's still that way. It's still available. The government makes sure that those who feel they need it can get it. Um, and uh, and it's also had it also has an extensive spiritual history in India. There is one sect of Hinduism that uses it as a sacrament, and it grows behind every single temple in India. The back behind the behind the temple, there is cannabis cultivation, and uh, 
the uh, sadhus and the holy men who have devoted their life to spirituality can come and, you know, get the resin off the plants with their hands and scoop it into a chillum and, and smoke it. Uh, and that's just, that has a long history. That's just interesting. Also, they, they took it seriously as a medicine. Uh, there's a history, particularly in Bengal, um, where there's a whole pharmacopoeia related to how to use in cannabis medically. And that, I think a lot of that had been translated when England uh, took control of India, uh, and they found it fascinating. And that spread throughout the English-speaking world. Uh, and then so we started, I, I think, I don't know if there was a direct link or if it was a coincidence, but suddenly we were starting to see uh, doctors suggested to their patients and uh, major drug companies, every single one of them, Eli Lilly, uh, all of the big drug companies had cannabis products. Uh, this is now in the 20s or actually earlier, even the, the 19, early 1900s. They had uh, cannabis, sativa available in every drugstore in America for over 25 years. So this is what they, what the federal government and John Anslinger in particular uh, set out to, to crush. And at that point, the AMA had brought four lawsuits against the government for uh, criminalization of cannabis uh, because their, their clients, the doctors, really wanted that to be an option that they could use. So I uh, just thought that would be interesting to add. Julie Holland is a highly respected psychedelic psychiatrist and author of the pot book, Ecstasy, The Complete Guide, and others. I think we met at Breaking Convention, but when she was the moderator for Alex Gray and I at a book event at the Rubin Museum, it was clear that she was amazing. She was up to date on the scientific medicine she, uh, research. She was experienced where it matters most in therapy with people who are in pain. And we're going to hear more about her new thinking. It's called Oneness, a Unified Theory of Connection. Thank you so much for being here, Julie. <clears throat> One of the things that cannabis does is it helps you forget things. Um, and it can help you forget what you were saying which is a disruption in working memory. And one of the connections between cannabis and schizophrenia, and I'm not saying that it causes it, but I'm saying if you look at schizophrenia and if you look at somebody when they're really high on cannabis, they have disruptions in working memory. Both of these groups will forget what they were saying. But we need to forget. You can't keep all the data that's going in you every day. And one of the reasons that we sleep and that we dream is that the brain is figuring out what to keep and what to get rid of. And the endocannabinoid system helps us forget. And one of the reasons why cannabis helps with PTSD uh, is that there are fewer nightmares and there's fewer remembering rememberings of the trauma. There's fewer intrusions into memory of flashbacks because because you're you're helping to forget. Uh, you know, the joke I made on Monday morning about, it's like childbirth, you forget the pain. You do forget the pain, it's very hard to remember it. It's the endocannabinoid system sort of wiping it clean and you're not gonna remember it. My work really is with Project CBD, um, and that's a, a nonprofit that focuses on cannabis science and um, therapeutics and somewhat political economy, you can't really avoid that. Um, and it's an educational platform, projectcbd.org. Um, we have a brisk web traffic these days, about a half a million visitors a month. What is it that we do? We translate science into English. 
uh, science into Spanish now as well. We're looking to translate into other languages if we have the resources. So if anybody wants to adopt the language for projectcbd.org, you can see me after the class. Um, but Project CBD isn't just an educational platform. It's also an activist group. Uh, and we essentially we were responsible for introducing CBD into the medical marijuana milieu in California back in 2009, 2010. At that time, very few people really knew about CBD. CBD is cannabidiol. It's a non-intoxicating component of the cannabis plant. It has a lot of very intriguing therapeutic attributes. Uh, and, and the idea at the time was, uh, you know, as a, as a small group of journalists, we were aware of what scientists were reporting on about CBD based on their experiments with mice. Uh, but scientists were talking to each other. And what they were saying really was jaw-dropping as a journalist covering these conferences. Um, and then when we were party to the rediscovery of some of the plants in Northern California that we called CBD-rich uh, it really raised a whole host of possibilities. The, the medical marijuana experience initially was very much a THC-oriented experience, THC, the high causer. Uh, CBD, if I would characterize it these days, it would be sort of uh, colossal big dollars. You know, it's, it's exploded. It, it, it's become such a huge phenomenon. Um, but in those days, very few people within the medical marijuana world that we were interacting, including doctors that knew about CBD. This was a new thing. Um, and we felt that if the impact on people, if they took CBD or CBD-rich cannabis, uh, if it was anything like the scientists were reporting about what it did to the mice, that this was going to be huge in terms of therapeutic possibilities. Um, so we were involved actually in actively introducing CBD, uh, seeding the landscape, but it wasn't seeds we were sharing, it was clones. We were giving away hundreds of clones of the CBD-rich plants to get it going, because as a journalist, unless people were taking this stuff, there's no, nothing to write about, really. You know, so we needed the, the story to unfold. But we also had another agenda at that time. And we felt that because CBD is non-intoxicating, that it had the potential to liberate cannabis from the drug abuse paradigm. Because in 2009, 2010, you know, it wasn't a cakewalk in California. Obama was president, but it was, he was not exactly a profile of courage when it came to cannabis at that time. It was a very uneven situation. There was a lot of pressure on. And we thought that CBD might, might sort of be the key to ending cannabis prohibition. I mean, things were sort of moving in that direction, but we thought CBD could really be a catalyst. And that was always sort of the hidden agenda uh, for what we were doing. And I think... Um, well, it might be a case of careful what you wish for in terms of what's transpired, because the whole thing has exploded now, and CBD is everywhere. You can get CBD in gas stations anywhere in the country, practically. And that's not what exactly we anticipated. Um, it's uh, sort of a mixed bag. But um, I think part, I, I, I think it was Jim, Jim Fadiman, he mentioned that CBD is now going to be in CVS stores. Walgreens. So the whole thing is way out there. I mean, Coca-Cola is talking about including CBD in their products. Uh, and I don't know whether to take a victory lap or to cry when I hear this, frankly. Uh, because, um, you know, the phrase, things go better with Coke, CBD does not go better with Coke. I can assure you about that. But this is all happening. It's, it's way beyond our control. It's very exciting. But part of this, you know, there's 
there's some misconceptions that are being promoted as part of this explosion of the, the business interest driving that talking about like $22 billion industry, just CBD alone in a few years. It's crazy. I don't know if these numbers are accurate, but it underscores the excitement around this. But there's, there's some basic misconceptions that are accompanying this, this explosion of interest in CBD, and it's driven in large part by the CBD industry itself. And the basic misconception really is that CBD is non-psychoactive. That is not correct. CBD is a profound mood changer. It's not an intoxicating agent, but it can, uh, you know, it can really lift one's depression. It, it, it is probably unparalleled as a pharmaceutical in terms of a, as an anxiolytic, as an anti-anxiety agent. So the, it has tremendous influence on one's psyche. So you can't say it's non-psychoactive. It's non-intoxicating. But along with this idea, see, it, it, it's, it's being driven by this notion that um, intoxication is bad, that it has to be avoid, avoided, that it's still the evil weed, but there's this part of it that's good. It's called cannabidiol. You know, and that's the meme that is being promoted in part by, certainly by people promoting hemp CBD. Um, and and it's, it's, um, it's problematic because, yes, CBD, if it's in a product or in a plant in sufficient quantity in relation to THC, will neutralize THC's psychoactivity. But that was never our point in the beginning when we got this ball rolling. It wasn't about negating or deleting psychoactivity. It was about managing psychoactivity. For people who are sensitive, overly sensitive to THC and don't enjoy that, well, CBD is great. It gives them a, a chance to experience the medical benefits of cannabis without, without getting high. But the point was really to manage the psychoactivity. The high is not bad. THC and CBD go to, uh, together, really. We, we call them the power couple of cannabis therapeutics. You need both, really, to get the most of it. Uh, but for some people, they are very sensitive, so they would have a product or, or, or a strain that was mainly CBD, low in THC. But for others, you, know, you find that balance, what's right for you. That's what we would say. We're not doctors at Pro uh, Project CBD. We don't give medical advice. But in general, the, the, um, our prescription, if you will, is people should use for medicinal purposes a CBD-rich product with as much THC as they're comfortable with. That, that's the idea. <laughs> CBD, THC, how, how do they work? Okay. Um, they, at the risk of oversimplifying, uh, these plant cannabinoids like CBD and THC, they work by mimicking and augmenting the effects of endogenous compounds, the endocannabinoids that our brain and bodies produce 24-7. And these endocannabinoids are part of what scientists refer to as the endocannabinoid system. And what, where this talk will be going, is, what I'm going to propose, and I've never actually talked about this before, is that psychedelics, um, key aspects of what's therapeutic about psychedelics are actually mediated by the endocannabinoid system, just as CBD and THC are. I mean, not exactly the same way, but it's the same system. So is, is cannabis psychedelic? I, I think it's kind of yes and no. It depends on dosage a lot. Um, high dose of, of a THC-rich product, whether it's a lump of hash that one would eat or an, a, a, a THC-infused edible that's very strong. Yes, it could be psychedelic. Um, uh, there were actually studies done on this in the late 60s by a guy named Dr. Harris Isbell, who was a leading public health official. He was also a longtime uh, CIA contract employee. They did a study comparing pure THC to LSD, high doses of THC. And he concluded high dose of THC very similar to, in fact, to LSD. That was his conclusion. The paper was published in 1969.
So I want to focus a little more on CBD because I think it, it addresses some of the, uh, the key conditions that have been coming up repeatedly during this, event, this meeting. Um, substance abuse, depression, trauma. I mean, CBD is made to order in some ways for these, for these conditions. And when I say CBD, it's shorthand for CBD rich. It means CBD is part of a full spectrum. Uh, there's a lot of research, uh, preclinical research, looking at CBD as an isolated molecule. And now it's been approved as a pharmaceutical for, for some of these tragic uh, epileptic conditions. Uh, the CBD is a legal pharmaceutical in the United States for these, for these uh, specific conditions. But I think uh, well, we can break it down. We can look at um, CBD in terms of addiction, for example. There's a lot of really interesting, compelling research that shows CBD um, helpful for methamphetamine addiction, cocaine, nicotine, uh, alcohol, even binge drinking, neuroprotective for brain damage from binge drinking. What's interesting, there's, there's a body of research that's emerging. It's, it's relatively small, but it's very compelling that suggests that CBD has anti-addictive qualities because how it affects memory, particularly cue-induced memory. You know, when, uh, for an addict or someone who goes through rehab, or maybe it's an ecstasy experience or a ketamine experience or an LSD experience, um, it's one thing to go through that experience, but if you go back to the same environment where you were and all the same cues... That, that remind you of, of the time of when you were addicted, it's very difficult to avoid relapsing if you're, expo if you're exposed to the same cues. And what they're finding, at least in animal studies, with CBD, it's, some, it's somehow that it breaks that visceral connection, that it breaks the link to the cue-induced memory, uh, that, so that by modifying that, it has this anti-addictive property. So I think this is something really that uh, is a very interesting area of research that will be pursued, hopefully. Um, so now what about depression? This is an area that um, also very interesting because a CBD has strong antidepressant qualities. And I think by, un by looking at how uh, CBD works in that way, I think we can shed a lot of light on how LSD, uh, psilocybin, ketamine also, ha their anti-addictive uh, um, potential. And I think that the antidepressant properties of psychedelics are very much contingent on this idea of, of neurogenesis, of the creation of new brain cells, of neuroplasticity, synaptogenesis, that, that the antidepressant qualities of these drugs are um, tied to the creation of new brain cells, literally. And, and this process is, is very much governed by cannabinoids. And uh, where am I, you know, how can I say this? And for this, I, I wanted to refer to a few documents. So I'm not going to read in full. But just to give you an idea of what's going on in cannabinoid science in this area in terms of neurogenesis, I'll just read a couple of titles of abstracts, maybe, maybe a sentence or two. So this, um, this is Cannabinoids, Neurogenesis, and Antidepressant Drugs. That's the title of the abstract. And it says uh, that this study has investigated the potential contribution of cannabinoids and neurogenesis to antidepressant effects. So it's clear that scientists are looking at this. So we have another document. Cannabinoids promote embryonic and adult hippocampus neurogenesis and produce anxiolytic, means anxiety-reducing, and antidepressant-like effects. So there's certain areas of the brain where new brain cells are created all the time, really. Uh, so this document refers to how cannabinoid treatment produces anxiolytic and antidepressant-like effects via promotion of hippocampal neurogenesis. This is not, I mean, this is a, a, a 
It's more than just an emerging consensus. I think this is how scientists understand it. Um, so another, another one, um, an understanding of the mechanism by which cannabinoid signaling influences developmental and adult neurogenesis will help foster the development of new therapeutic strategies for neurodevelopmental, psychiatric, and neurological disorders. And then we have, this is just last month, March 19th, from Spanish scientists. Uh, substance abuse causes a disruption in the synaptic plasticity of the brain circuits involved in addiction, with the alteration of normal endocannabinoid activity playing a prominent role. So the endocannabinoid system becomes dysregulated in addiction. So if you can re-regulate it, you can help addiction. That's the idea. Uh, the cannabinoid system actually becomes dysregulated in really all, all diseases. This is another one. Cannabin endocannabinoid system is one of the most relevant biochemical systems mediating alcohol addiction. The endocannabinoid system regulates adult neurogenesis. Furthermore, adult neurogenesis is inversely correlated with voluntary consumption of alcohol. These findings suggest that adult hippocampal neurogenesis is a key factor in drug abuse and that it may provide a new strategy for the treatment of alcohol addiction and dependence. There's dozens and dozens of articles like this. This is not out there, you know, edgy stuff anymore. So we have depression that CBD addresses because CBD is also neurogenic. It also pr promotes the creation of new brain cells. So does, L uh, does THC. So does LSD and psilocybin and ketamine. And I think some of the mushrooms that Paul Stamens talks about I think that, that aren't necessarily psychedelic, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, cordyceps, lion's mane, and others, that these also have neurogenic properties. You know, why do some people are, uh, are so uh, sensitive to, to THC? It's because that there are variations on, on the genes that uh, encode the enzymes that break down THC. Uh, you, you know, you, you take a drug, you start to metabolize it right away. Well, most people metabolize THC at a certain rate. It gets you high, right? Well, some people, have, uh, whatever is going on, it's called a polymorphism or, or, or a mutation. They don't metabolize these uh, THC very well. So it stays in the system long, uh, longer, and it's just much more sensitive to it. Uh, among Caucasians, about 25% have this uh, uh, polymorphism that makes them very sensitive to THC. Among uh, people of African descent, about 10%, Asians, 5%. And we all know, uh, probably people in this room, who just don't like cannabis, don't like THC. Gives them the willies. You know, it, in, in, our, in our circles, you know, we don't feel so much stigmatized by cannabis use. It's more like if you, if you don't like it, you're stigmatized. And we should just understand that this is a matter of genetics, you know, and it's okay, and you could still benefit from cannabis therapeutically. So, anyway. If you're in a state that has a medical marijuana program, or um, just if cannabis is legal for adult use, you know, better to get the CBD product from a licensed storefront. Because usually, certainly it's the case in California, uh, the producer has to go through some hoops and they have to have this stuff validated by the lab. And, and it, the, what's, in, what's on the label has to correspond to what's actually in there. And you can, with some reasonable degree of confidence, be, be if not sure, you know, you can have the feeling more likely that the product is not going to be, uh, you know, uh, have, have solvent residues and, and pesticide residues of you know, too much and so forth. So always better to get it from a licensed storefront. Um, you know, as for what you get in gas stations or what you get on streets of New York or at the coffee shops now, 
you know, it's like a crapshoot. I mean, uh, some of the stuff's okay. Uh, uh, but uh, it, the, the main problem is it's mainly just CBD and, and maybe a little bit of THC in there. That, that's the biggest problem as far as we're concerned. Consumer Reports is going to come out with a big study on, on these products, and we're really waiting for that one. <laughs> so Because we're always asked, well, what do you recommend for people that don't live in California? What should they get? And, and you know, we don't really recommend specific products in general, but... Uh, you know, I've just been sort of biting my tongue and waiting for the consumer. Hurry up already. <laughs> you know? So uh, we'll see. We're looking forward to that. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Psychedelic Integration Conference was produced by Alan Bediner in conjunction with Dream Mulek. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, eslen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Eslen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 